Hello, you're listening, you are listening to SRM Student Radio Master on 107.5 FM. Do you want Student Radio Maastricht on RTV 107.5 FM. My name is Sham, your tech for today. And what you were listening there was the was the DJ Futurize from Maastricht. So thank you very much to Moza Musica for letting us share their um, the the enterprise with uh, with local artists. And this is, by the way, this was played uh, on RTV as well last Saturday. And if you're wondering when when this happens, this happens every Saturday between the evening between eight to nine. But we are in the studio today with the European Careers Association. Yes. Am I correct, Elisa? Thank yeah. you very much. And yeah, Elisa, can you please uh, introduce yourselves and the topic? Yes. Thank you very much, and welcome again. Uh, I am here today with Eric and Loni. We all come from European Careers Association, and specifically from the Blue and Yellow Blog. 
And I'm very happy to be here on the radio for the fourth or fifth time, I think, now. Well, counting. We will be here also in two weeks, so <laughs> stay tuned for more of us. Um, but today we are going to talk about EU foreign policy, a very important and interesting topic. Um, but before maybe let's introduce ourselves who is here. So you already know me. My name is Eliza. I come from Poland. I study European law in my second year bachelor. And in the European Careers Association, I am the editress in chief of our blog. And uh, next year I will be the president of the association. So that's very exciting. And um, I have two wonderful members from the Blue and Yellow blog joining me today. So Leonie, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, hello everyone. I'm Leonie. I'm from Germany. I'm in my first year um, master um, at Maastricht University and I study European studies. Um, currently, I'm still um, a writer for the blog Blue and Yellow, but upcoming academic year, I'll be the co-editress. So I'm very excited to take over um, Eliza's role and... Yeah, Eric, what about you? <laughs> yes, so I'm Eric. I'm also from Germany and I'm currently studying in uh, at KU Leuven in Belgium and I'm studying international politics, but I studied a master's here before. And yeah, I'm just a normal member of the mm -hmm. blog and I'm excited to be here with you all. Yes, well, we're all very excited to talk about EU foreign policy today. So can one of you bring the topic closer to us or say what you're going to talk about and also how are you going to explain it in simple terms to, terms to our listeners? <laughs> Yeah, certainly. So we are going to have three different sections planned. Um, one of them is just going to be a bit more in general about what is actually EU foreign policy. So there we will kind of give a quick introduction and then we will have two more sections. One will focus on frozen conflicts. So that's what, yeah, my area of expertise, so to speak. And then we will have one section on migration where Leonie is going to be our expert of the evening. Yeah, and I think in terms of explaining it um, as easy as possible. Of course, it is complex um, and there is a lot more to it than we will probably say, but we try to keep it broad on the one hand, but mm. then also provide some details so you actually maybe learn some things. <laughs> yes, and the, today's episode was 90% prepared by Eric and Leonie, so I will also act as the person that asks questions or is not an expert on the topic, so I will try to make it also easier for everyone to understand by asking maybe very simple questions but yeah we'll see how it goes and um, for now we can move to some music and then we'll dive into the topic Why are you so bitter, 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 sweet? 
second part of our um, yeah, little series today about EU foreign politics. Um, so I would like to start off with just discussing a bit of why the EU even has um, foreign policy or foreign politics, how that kind of evolved. So as you may or may not know, um, the European project was initiated after the Second World War and it was basically an economic union and over the years it Yeah, the countries integrated more and more. And after the end of the Cold War, so around the 1990s, um, the EU foreign politics really became a policy area in which um, the EU member states at that time wanted to integrate. And that's for three reasons. So as I've mentioned, um, after the Cold War, the, yeah, the, the dynamics of the international order kind of switched as it was not the US versus um, the Soviet Union anymore, but it was more a completely fallen apart um, Eastern area and then the US on the other side and the EU kind of had to find a new position in this in this world order. Um, secondly, Germany re reunification of course occurred um, and the, a lot of European countries were still traumatized from the Second World War. And they wanted to ensure that Germany would be as integrated as possible and as interdependent as possible and um, yeah, to just assure that there's not going to be a third war. So the motto was kind of a European Germany rather than a German Europe. 
Um, and then thirdly, the war in Yugoslavia broke out, um, or more or less the <laughs> break off of the Yugoslavia. And um, yeah, it was it was a very brutal um, war with genocide happening, and the EU European countries found themselves more or less incapable um, of adequately responding to that war. And so these kind of three dynamics that happened more or less at the same time kind of led all European countries to, yeah, think about um, how to act united as a European uh, bloc, so to say. Um, and that's when they met in Maastricht, actually, um, the Maastricht Treaty in 1992, um, founded the Common Foreign and Security Policy, short CFSP. And um, that kind of laid the groundwork uh, of yeah, how the countries want to cooperate on foreign policy. And for that also a new position was created that is uh, the High Representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Se Security Policy, short HR. And that is a designated person that represents the EU and foreign policy internationally and the main idea was to just ensure consistency and unity and also effectiveness and for other countries that maybe don't understand the very complex uh, EU um, yeah, having a, a person to talk to. And with that, or do you want to jump in, Eric? Yes, um, I can certainly jump in now. So I think what we would like to add here is also that um, there is something in the literature called the expectation capability gap. So you were saying, you know, there's a common um, foreign and security policy. There's also the CSDP, um, the common security and defense policy. Um, however, that always raises a lot of expectations to read these very big names you hear about common EU foreign policy. Um, but yeah, what do you have to consider is that the EU actually doesn't have a lot of competences. The EU is a supranational body. It's not a nation state. So obviously the capabilities that the EU has doesn't really match the expectations most of the time. And I think we will probably come back to this later in the migration section as well. But yeah, I mean, a lot quite often in the media you would read ah, okay the EU is not doing enough the EU should do more the EU should do this or that but yeah I think a lot of people they just forget that the EU just doesn't have the competences and I think that's something that we should really keep in mind especially also now with the war in Ukraine going on yeah definitely I think I mean that's something that the EU is working on right and creating a position like the HR or also creating their own diplomatic service um, to just unite at an EU level. But of course, and that's one aspect that's still widely discussed, foreign policy and security policy are yeah, policies that are very close to national sovereignty. And all EU member states are then, of course, very hesitant to give that into the hands of a supranational EU body. Um, but speaking of, of defense, I think you already briefly touched upon it. Um, that was it's more or less a very or the newest addition to um, the foreign policy integration um, and I think the main aspect of the common security and defense policy of the EU is that it's based on the Petersburg task so mm -hmm. it evolves around conflict prevention and humanitarian tasks peacemaking post-conflict stabilization disarmament so um, it's not very offensive but rather the EU coming together and agreeing that if they engage in any kind of conflict, it's always going to be defensive. defensive yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's also a strong focus on humanitarian aid in there. And I think the last thing that we should add is that, um, you know, there are a lot of areas in the EU where 
the decision-making procedure is a little bit different. You only require a qualified majority to reach a decision. But then when it comes to foreign policy, since it's, as you said, something that is very important for nation states, there has to be a unanimous vote. So again, recently when Hungary was blocking the EU sanctions on oil imports to, uh, from Russia, you could see that all the countries had to agree. And if there's one country that doesn't agree with a certain thing, there's nothing the EU can really do. Could you maybe briefly explain the QMV and unanimity, what you just touched upon, the terms so everybody knows? Yeah, so I mean, with unanimity, you would say um, basically all of the member states have to agree. So if one member state says, no, I'm not on board, um, the vote cannot go through. Whereas with QMV, you need um, two thirds of the member states have to agree. And then uh, I'm not sure about the population census, but a certain percentage of population also has to be represented by the member states that are agreeing. And then I think the last aspect of, you know, the general EU foreign policy um, is also the position or the debate on should there be a European army and what's the role of NATO. Um, we won't go into too much detail, but as of now, despite the Ukraine war, um, the EU is still or is the security of the of the EU and Europe is ensured by the US and With that, of course, the NATO plays a very important role. Not every EU member state is in the NATO, but there is a very large overlap. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of debate going on in the EU to what extent they should maybe become more independent of NATO. There's a term called strategic autonomy, which basically implies that if the EU wants to do something in foreign politics, that it actually has the capability to do so, rather than having to de depend on NATO and ultimately the US. But um, yeah, that's still very much just debated and, and not too much action going on. Um, but you can see, yeah, there is a graduation or gradual, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like mm -hmm. a gradual um, movement towards yeah. finding um, or uniting capabilities. Um, yeah, so that EU will become even stronger and more united in foreign politics. Beautifully said. <laughs> yes, that's very interesting. I just have one question to sum it up because uh, since we are all very much into this EU bubble and the European environment in general, what do you think are the um, ideas or the what is what do the people think about the European army? Do you think there are more tendencies towards yes, we should have a common European army, or no, this is something that we want to keep on the national level? Also, seeing that you're both from Germany, maybe you can say your perspective of your country as well because I think that's like a very hot topic to discuss. Definitely. Eric, do you want to go ahead? Um, yeah, sure. So I think what you can generally speaking say is that there are some member states that might be a bit more in favor of it and then there are some member states that are a bit more apprehensive. So I would assume that especially like the Baltic or the Eastern member states are a bit more vulnerable. Of course, the Russian threat is much greater for them. So they are much more in favor of it. And yeah, I'm not too sure about Germany. Maybe you know more about that, Leonie. Um, I would say Germany is, I mean, you cannot generalize Germany as like one opinion, but I think the discourse is shifting more towards, no, we don't want a European army, mostly because Germany is still very hesitant generally to use their own army. And giving that now in the hands of the EU is, I think, something that's so deeply culturally embedded um, and very hesitant towards war um, that Germany doesn't really want to give that away. And of course, that would entail it. However, um, Germany and France have been working on creating more cooperation in something called 
PESCO. Um, and with that, it basically means that, you know, across the EU member states, we have a lot of different, for example, fighter planes or tanks, or etc. And um, the goal is to unite those um, and in that sense, sharing capabilities. So I think rather than having a U- European army, I think in the next year, we'll hopefully um, see a more development towards just sharing more capabilities. Um, but yeah, I think the EU is very divided on that. Okay, thank you very much for your view. And I think that's a nice place to round it off and go to some music again. Thank you. And I'll be singing la 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 You're breaking me la 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 You're breaking me la 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 You're breaking me la 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 I'm just right here dancing around to the rhythm The rhythm that you play when you're breaking my heart
So we're back here from ECA. I'm Eric, and now we're going to talk a little bit um, about frozen conflict. So that's what I wrote my master thesis about right now. And I also went to Moldova in February, shortly before the invasion of Russia and Ukraine. And I visited Transnistria, so one of the frozen conflicts that we might talk about. But yeah, let's maybe start first a bit. Um, what is a frozen conflict to begin with? So a frozen conflict, or the EU actually prefers to call them protracted conflicts. Um, so these are conflicts that most of the time we find them in the post-Soviet space, such as Moldova or Azerbaijan, um, the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, but also some other conflicts could be um, specified as um, a frozen conflict, such as the conflict between Cyprus and the Turkish Cyprus part. Um, so yeah, they are usually conflicts where we have um, we had a war, or maybe we had a civil war, or some sort of violent conflict, and then this violent conflict stopped at some point, and ever since the conflict has been kind of lingering on as a political, elitist, sometimes ethnic conflict um, without violence most of the time. Although Nagorno-Karabakh is obviously the notable um, yeah exception to that example. Um, yeah, so I can maybe talk a little bit about my personal experience first and maybe you have some questions for me then. Um, so yeah, I went to Moldova and Transnistria recently in um, early February and yeah, um, it was quite interesting because we had um, our, we had we had to cross the border and it is a de jure part of Moldova, but um, yeah, there is a border between those two countries. And when you cross it, it's a bit of a weird experience really because um, you have Russian soldiers guarding the border, there are Russian, Russian armored infantry vehicles. And once you enter the country, there are some Russian checkpoints as well. Um, and it's quite an interesting experience really. Um, so yeah, um, that's kind of it for now. Do you have any questions maybe? I think mine would be how did how did that interest develop and kind of why why you went there? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I think I got intrigued by it because for all of the listeners that like football, um, last season we had Sheriff Tiraspol. They went to the Champions League. It was the first time that a football team from Moldova qualified, but it's not any football team. Um, they are run by a corporation called Sheriff. They essentially own most of the country in Transnistria. Um, and Tiraspol is the capital of Transnistria. So we have, suddenly we have a football club that is playing against Real Madrid. It's playing against the biggest teams in the world. They even beat Real Madrid this season 2-1 um, two, two, at home, um, which is quite funny considering that they won the Champions League in the end. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of how the interest developed. And yeah, I decided to go there because I wanted to see the local perspective because we Westerners, we might have our own perspective and we might read about it in the news, but I just thought that I had to see it for myself to form a proper opinion, speak to some local people and see what they have to say. And we are talking obviously this episode about EU foreign politics. So how, what's the role of the EU in these frozen conflicts? So yeah, that's a good question. It kind of varies. Um, so for example, in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, the EU is not playing a big role at the moment, although that might change depending on um, yeah, how the OSCE will change um, given the war in Ukraine right now. Um, but for Moldova, it's a bit of a different um, story. So first of all, we have a border assistance mission to Ukraine and Moldova that also is mandated to, well, basically contribute towards the peace process. 
Um, and also the EU has an observer status in the negotiations. So the official format of, for the negotiations is called the 5 plus 2 format. So we have five countries that are actual mediators or they're the conflict parties. And then we have two observers and the EU and um, the USA are two of the observers. Um, so yeah, we see a lot of EU action in that specific conflict, but the general um, answer for frozen conflicts would have to be it really varies from case to case. And it, I mean, it makes sense at the end of the day because obviously Moldova is a direct neighbor to the EU. Um, it neighbors um, Romania. They actually speak an EU language there as well, Romanian. Um, so the EU's involvement is yeah much greater there than compared to Nagorno-Karabakh, for example. And what can the EU actually do in these frozen conflicts, for example, if they say they want to resolve it? Um, yeah, I mean, that is the golden question. I mean, um, if we could answer that, that would be great. However, um, so what I see is that the EU has been trying to create, um, as we would say in German, Wandel durch Handel, so change through um, trade. Uh, so, for example, with Moldova, they did something very, very interesting. They, for the first time, they negotiated with a secessionist entity. Um, and they actually went to Tiraspol, they talked to the leaders there, and they said, all right, uh, we want to include you in our DCFTA, which is the Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Area, which basically gives access to third countries to the European Common Market. Um, obviously, Chisinau, the, cap the capital of Moldova, they approved of this. Um, and companies from Transnistria have to register in Moldova first before they can trade with the EU. But this seems to be kind of the approach to try to incorporate them more into our system, maybe um, basically disseminate our norms and values into those certain countries. But then at the same time, the EU is also funding a lot of confidence building measures. But this is also something that they would do in other conflicts where maybe they don't have such a big role. So for example, in Nagorno-Karabakh, um, the OSCE might Uh, start these confidence building measures but their budget is most of the time it's rather limited so often the EU jumps in and they help with funding or they also create their own confidence building measures between the different parties very interesting <laughs> yeah, yeah it's very interesting and also quite new to me so <clears throat> I would like to ask you did you have a chance to maybe speak with some locals when you went to Moldova and what was your impression and how do they see this whole situation I know that these are just examples of individuals, so we cannot like derive any general conclusions from it, but I would still be very much interested to hear about like the experiences of the locals there. Yeah, certainly. So when we were in Tiraspol, the capital of Transnistria, we uh, started talking to a young couple. They were very, very friendly. Um, they were quite open. Uh, she was Russian and the guy was from Transnistria, born and raised. Um, and they were quite open-minded. Um, they were opposition um, they would support Alexei Navalny in Russia, so they wouldn't really follow like the Russian narrative. But that's why it made it even more interesting when they were telling us that they are not too happy about the Moldovan approach because they kind of see Moldova as hostile towards them. Um, and especially the recent president now, um, you have to know that about two years ago there was a regime change in Moldova. So before that, the Communist Party was in power which was more pro-Russian, whereas now um, a more pro-European um, alliance has taken power. Uh, and yeah, they kind of find her um, rhetoric a bit hostile. And they were, I mean, at the end of the day, they were just saying they just want to live in peace. Uh, they want to live in independence because um, they speak Russian. The rest of Moldova speaks uh, Romanian or, well, Moldovan. Um, yeah. Um, so that was that one. And then we had one other very interesting encounter because we went to this um, monastery in Transnistria. 
And we met a German guy there. He was living in this monastery. I don't really know why. He was kind of a weird guy, not going to lie. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was quite interesting because this, he told us that this monastery is kind of a no man's land. Um, and we actually, we, we accidentally drove to the border there and there's like a border post and everything. But yeah, he was telling us that like neither side really wants to have this place. They don't want to own the village that is connected to it. They don't really care about the monastery. Um, and he also told us a story that um, sometimes the border guards, they would, I don't know, they would catch people in like the border uh, country in the no man's land. And if they have no papers, they they would just beat them up and throw them in front of the monastery. And then, I don't know, he didn't really say what the monastery do, does with these people, but I guess they kind of like take them in and take care of them. But I think that was something that really, it kind of shocked me, you know, because it sounded like something from the medieval ages, but not something from 2022. Yeah, yeah. Also, I think you texted me about this or you put this in your article, but it's, it's, it really sounds like from some book or something. Like yeah. You would not expect that this happens in 2022. <laughs> yeah, certainly not. But yeah, I mean, if you want to get some more information about the conflict, I kind of summarized what I wrote in my thesis in one of the ECA blog articles. So you can always check that out if you want to get some more information or you can reach out to social media and then, yeah, we can come back to you and answer your questions. Yes, perfect. I think, do you have anything more to add or? No, I think Any maybe we can questions? go to some music. Yes, I think so as well. Gave me my devotions You were playing my emotions Just to get it oh. But the truth's so loud No more secrets now I'm on overload Ready to explode Time to call you out Cause you messed up I'm 
Just live it up. Just live it. Love me crazy. Hello, guys, and welcome back. I'm Leonie. I'm here with the European Career Association, and we're currently talking about EU foreign politics. As Eric and I, who's here with me, are both very interested in that topic. I specifically uh, focus on migration, also now in my master thesis. So I thought we would have a five to seven minutes talking about um, yeah migration and EU foreign politics. Um, so to dive right into the topic, um, I mean, you probably all know the, the sentence, wir schaffen das, which Angela Merkel said in 2015. And um, yeah, that was the year where the so-called migration crisis really erupted uh, Europe. Um, of course, migration was before 2015 also a very prominent topic. However, I think for the, uh, yeah, your neighbor, yourself, like everybody in, in Europe living a very good and privileged life, I think we were not really confronted with migration and that more or less changed um, in 2015. And although the situation, of course, has now calmed down in the sense that there's not a million people anymore trying to enter the EU, but rather just 100,000, which in my opinion is still quite a bit. Um, it's still a very, very important topic. So that's why we're talking about it now. Um, in terms of EU foreign politics and how that connects to migration, because you maybe might think, well, migration is a very internal topic. Mm -hmm. um, the EU kind of made it a foreign poli policy because... Um, they came up with what is called a global approach to migration and, mo and mobility. It was kind of the EU's response towards that migration crisis. And it entails that the EU tries to externalize its migration policy. So they make agreements with third countries, so-called mobility partnerships. And uh, those are basically stating, to put it very simply, that the third country should... Um, protect its borders and keep the migrants from being able to enter or even reach the EU external border. And um, that is something or a policy that more or less works, I would say. But it definitely put the EU in a position where the third countries now have quite a bit of power over the EU. Um, and that's for two reasons. On the one hand, the EU or the yeah, within the EU, within the EU migrate, um, member states, migration kind of became a security issue. So, yeah, people are, at least some people are scared of migrants. Mm -hmm. um, and all EU member states are rather hesitant to integrate more migrants. Um, and the third countries know that. Um, and now they are, if they are making agreements with the EU, they are basically yeah wanting money or um, humanitarian aid or any kind of other yeah, interest um, they have. Um, and so recently, I'm not sure how familiar we are, um, but Belarus, for example, used migrants against the EU um, to yeah, more or less pursue their, their national interest, and that is to have the EU lift uh, the sanction regime the EU imposed against Belarus. And um, unfortunately, this yeah, weaponization of migrants or instrumentalization or mm -hmm. coercive engineered migration, there are a lot of terms for it, but yeah. it basically down, d boils down to a third country using migrants um, as pressure and yeah, 
creating a, a flow, a migration flow to the EU um, in order to put pressure on the EU and then get concessions from the EU. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. But I think a question that I would have here for you is, how would you solve that problem kind of, you know, because right now, I mean, sometimes we see with Turkey, especially, you know, when they are trying to do some more drills and then Greece and Cyprus get angry at them. What they just do is they just give some of the refugees a boat, they put them on the water and then they tell, oh, go westwards and at some point you will reach Greece. So, I mean, that's not how it should work. Um, so do you have a solution or maybe is there a solution in the works right now? I mean, no, there's not a solution. Um, the EU is working on a solution in that sense that they're trying to create more partnerships that are more stable um, <laughs> and trustworthy connections. But I guess that's um, up for interpretation to what extent that's actually going to um, work. I think the EU is facing a huge credibility issue because they're always, yeah, they're not pretending. I mean, they are um, in a way, say, or are a democratic value-based, human rights, rule of law, um, political union. And so um, they're preaching um, yeah, to, to act like that. And every country that wants to become part of the EU, now thinking about the Balkan states, for example, they have to implement quite a bit of, um, yeah, or implement the Aquis Communitaire, which is basically um, a rule book, um, so to say. But... Um, yeah, so the EU is pretending to have a very normative power. However, when it comes to the migrants, um, they're pursuing a very realistic, strategic, security-driven agenda, which is usually at the expense of the migrants. Um, again, the example of Belarus, um, in the wintertime, there were thousands of migrants stuck in Belarus in the forests. Um, Poland not willing to take them in but actually the EU not willing to take them in and um, when in the case of Turkey in 2020 um, the EU was very quick to negotiate agreements with Turkey so um, they made sure that all migrants are taken back to Turkey so to answer your question Eric no the EU does not really have a solution to it and I wouldn't even say that the EU has a common response to it they respond to each country differently and it is usually at the expense of the migrants. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think right now we're also seeing a lot of issues, you know, like the this nice picture of normative human rights-based Europe is kind of crumbling. So, I mean, of course, we have Frontex, an EU agency that has been proven to be breaching uh, human rights and international law Um because sometimes they would send refugees back, which is against international law. Sometimes they would even send them back without a boat, which endangers and might have even killed migrants in the process. So, um, yeah, but I think also another issue that I would like to discuss with you is, um, I think it's the biggest issue at the moment. So we have Poland that didn't want to take in a couple of thousand refugees from Belarus. And then now we have the war in Ukraine and suddenly Poland says, okay, everybody can come in. We will take millions of refugees. And I mean, obviously this raises a quite important question. Like, why is this the case? Racism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, that is something that's not necessarily in the hands of the EU, to so, so to say. It's also, um, yeah, each member state individually. But yes, this is definitely something that we're seeing and that I found shocking. I mean, I strongly support every fleeing Ukrainian to come to the EU. 
Um, but I don't understand why a Ukrainian has the right to come to the EU, but an Afghan or a Syrian person does not. Um, and I think that's definitely something the EU should, should address. It doesn't. Um, I'm also of the opinion that the EU should take the migrants in. Um, but yeah, there are always arguments um, that are then against it in, in the security terms. So yeah, it's a very sensitive, a very tricky tricky topic um, that I think there's not really a solution to, um, but I think it should be addressed, especially what can we do to ensure that the, the, the refugees, the migrants have human rights, that they have the right to asylum um, and that, you know, they are not in danger. But I think that also to make the connection to the first section that we um, discussed, I think that really nicely shows the expectation capability gap mm -hmm. once again, because I think a lot of uh, commentators, newspapers, even politicians, they would say, oh, okay, European Commission, please come up with a solution. But I mean, you just nicely described, it's not up to the Commission to make a decision here, it's up to the member states. And as long as the member states um, don't yeah, get their stuff together, there's nothing the EU can really do. And I think that's a nice um, example to highlight that. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. thank you very much for all the input. Now I think it was a lot to take in, so maybe now we should move on to some music and then we will summarize the whole discussion. Turn it up till you feel too much Till you're lost in your 
Yes, hello, we're back here, still from ECA. I'm Eric, and yeah, um, let's do a quick summary of what we've been talking today because our time is coming to an end here. So, yeah, I mean, we talked about foreign policy a little bit today. I hope that we gave you a good, concise, and most importantly, understandable um, summary of what EU policy is like. And um, you might wonder, there are a lot of different things that we could have talked about today, and I think that is kind of the point here. Um, EU foreign policy is a huge topic it's very vast and i think the two topics that we discussed today they also showed it's an extremely complex and very um, context dependent um yeah policy so i think we that's what we kind of tried to show you today um yeah and i think some other points that i would like to um, outline here again is that we have a couple of um, articles on our blog so if you're interested in it do not hesitate to go to the blue and yellow blog and you know give it a read and if you have any questions um, please do not hesitate to reach out to us uh, on social media and you will be put into contact with the experts from our blog team and hopefully they will be able to answer all the questions that you may have do you want to add something guys um, yeah, I think thank you so much for, for the session. It was very insightful. Um, I think one more context or yeah, content um, point that I would like to make is, of course, what Eric said, EU foreign policy is very broad. Um, there are a lot of things to it. Um, we did not go into too much detail now uh, on the war in Ukraine. Um, but of course, this is a huge part, um, war in Europe and how do you how do we deal with it um and so far there's still no not united response at least from the eu um and it continues to be yeah very important um but i also hope uh, and think that it will yeah maybe get some stones rolling uh, <laughs> so to say um yeah. so that yeah maybe eu foreign policy will integrate even further and more capabilities will be shared more financial means will be available um, but yeah, the, the juggle between acting united and then also having 27 voices mm -hmm. within yeah. that union, um, having different national interests will be, despite any war, uh, very, very complex and tricky uh, yeah, to handle. Yes. Thank you very much for all the insights. Um, I agree that it is a very complex topic and I hope we brought it a bit closer to you, our listeners today. And like Eric said, do not hesitate to contact us on Instagram or to check out our blog and find our contact details there. I hope we will be able to help you in all your questions. And to round it off, I would like to invite all of you to the end of the year gala of ECA that is happening on the 10th June, so next Friday at 6 p.m. in Stay OK in Maastricht. Uh, and this event will be the end of the year gala for the whole European Careers Association, but also a blog lounge, because finally now after COVID is almost over, we will have a proper launch of the blog. You will be able to see our most interesting articles. You will be able to also see our Instagram being born in front of your eyes. So I would really like to invite you to come. It is open to everyone, not only ECA members. So just drop by, stay okay, 10th of June, Friday at 6 p.m. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, thank you so much. And I think we go back to um, to our, our, our lovely DJ from uh, from Moza Musica, Future Eyes. Um, yeah, I very much appreciate you sharing your tracks. And um, yeah, stay tuned, because in the next hour we have Amber Wave uh, live in the studio. So in the meantime, here we go.